I don't, I, I really, it's so funny. I was sure that you had perfectly manipulated us by reading the restricted case files and the bummer volume before it, because this one just came out of the gate and I was like, God damn, what a strong volume this was. Um, and I really did. It, and what was odd was I really did love it all the way through. And yet toward the end, I was like, okay, okay, this has got to be over. Like, you know, it's a little bit of, I think we've talked about that sort of like too much ice cream effect where you're just like, I just don't want to eat anymore. Like, it's all good. Well, it, it, there's there, nothing there's bad. Also, but, yeah. There's also, um, we, we can talk about this like on when we're doing proper recording. You may or may not notice the episodes get longer in this book. Yes. No, I totally did. And it was fucking with me. Seriously. So... Welcome to Drock, episode 11. Uh, I am Graham McMillan, and with me is my esteemed co-host. Jeff Lester. I'm esteemed, everyone. This is the podcast where we talk about Judge Dredd, and we read Judge Dredd, The Complete Case Files, volumes one through, I mean, whenever it ends. Or yeah, whenever. yeah, that was, uh, that was a weird forever. way to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Forever, <laughs> everyone. Uh, we are coming to you live and direct from Ian McDermott Block. Which oh. only seems fitting on the weekend that we're recording this. And we are reading the Case Files Volume 10, which is Progs 474 to 522 from 1986 to 1987, aka the one where there's a really weird strip about Wham. Yes! Oh shit, I forgot that on my notes. Yeah, that is a wild twist. Right? Yeah, that's yeah. a wild twist who, to a weird story. Who saw? But, but here's the funny thing, because this, so there is, well, no, I'm not joking. There is a story in here where it is a a uh, fighting match between a representative from Andrew Ridgely Block and from George Michael Block. Yeah. You must have done the same as me, which is when you read it, you're like, okay, when did Wham break up? And it seems to have been written around Wham's breakup. Really? Holy shit. Yes. Oh, that's really funny. Okay. Which I kind of love. I kind of love the idea that John Wagner and Alan Grant, who wrote all of these episodes, were Wham fans. <laughs> and that they were so upset at the breakup of the, uh, I think we can only call them band, that they they wrote an episode which is about how Andrew Ridgely Block and George Michael Block can't get on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. I have to say, I thought this volume was amazing overall. Uh, I it, really it, do. It's, it's, a, it's actually a really, really strong volume. And also a, a, a stealth volume, for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like, on first read through, it felt like, you know, a number of short stories, for want of a better way of putting it, mm-hmm. with no theme. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. and then in second, I was like, "Oh, this is the one where like it's really fucking dystopian." Uh, you know, it's funny because the two things or the three things that I thought were running through the undercurrent of this was, I especially what's weird because it's really just you know it's just a year 
You know, like it's this is a year of dread strips and whatever was on Wagner and Grant's mind, you know, they were they were kind of they're just churning out stories. I really don't think again, this is 85, 86. The idea of this stuff being collected in any sort of permanent way is not on anyone's radar at all, you know, and uh And yet what's astounding to me is it pretty much opens with a story, Dread versus Dread, by, you know, illustrated amazingly by Kevin O'Neill, that more or less is a deconstruction of Judge Dread. Yes. And that deconstruction continues, like, I feel all throughout the volume. Yes, it's kind of amazing. And also not just of Dread, but also of Mega City 1. Oh, very uh, much there, so. There is yeah. a lot of stuff in here that is, like, genuinely is newly or, or deeper in terms of the dystopia and in terms of how genuinely terrible mm-hmm. it would be to, to exist in Mega City 1. I do want to say one thing, though. You said, you know, when this was being written, the idea of Dread being collected was, was not a thing. Mm, that's right. not that's true. not true the, the yeah. titan reprints right. started like back in 81 right by 86 the collections has started to go monthly <laughs> the titan collections right right well so, I, I guess what i mean is hmm, how do i mean i mean you're absolutely right i am right like even as i was saying that i'm like eh. i mean because this is ironically enough to be talking about this week like this this stuff's coming out while Watchmen's coming out. Like this stuff is right. coming yeah. out. Yeah. Like there's very much a sense of the, you know, like you said, it's being collected, you know, by Titan, but there's also America starting to put stuff into mm-hmm. trades mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. keep the idea of keeping some of this stuff in print, as opposed to what had always been sort of the, Oh yeah, sure. We're going to put this in a, you know, best of digest or something like that. But that's, that's really not yeah, going to exactly, stay yeah, in exactly. print any like, longer than, yeah. you know. So, so, you know, prior to the Titan books, really, like, your hope for a reprint was maybe an annual. Right, yeah. No, and even then, it would be, like, you know, a particular story, not all of it. Right, so there I, I think yeah. like, even the Titan books were, were curated. Yeah, like, which makes sense. Weren't every single, uh, weren't every single Dread book at all. Right, right. Um, so. But no, you're right, like, there is this, it's, I mean, at this point, do you think that things about the deconstruction of Dread and the deconstruction of Mega City One are Wagner and Grant basically trying to keep themselves entertained, or do you think that there is some idea of maybe not even collections, but people are going to come back and read this in back issues? I don't. I don't know. I would like to think that that is the case. I, I think that it's, and 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 maybe it is. I think honestly, more than anything else. Because it's been 10 years, um, it seems to me that there is, and especially where the UK is in 10 years, like all of the stuff that we have sort of touched on and that I feel that are really excellent um, cadre of, of uh, commenters over on the website have been talking about is very much about where the UK, the direction that the UK is going is a little darker and a little dystopian and there's a little more um i i feel feel like weirdly enough wagner and grant have a weird part of it is 
it might be something as oblique as kind of a personal responsibility that they might feel about how to present Dread and Mega City One. But I will also say one of the other undercurrents, apart from deconstruction, is there are several stories here that are very explicitly about artists and artists being oh, screwed. Yes. You know? Yes. Which again gets back to the Titan thing for me. So so let's talk about the most obvious one, the art of Kenny Who. Yes. Which is I mean, a, just a an amazing storyline. Yeah. The short version is a Scottish artist called Kenny Who comes to Mega City One with the hope of getting employed by Big One, the publishing company, the comic publishing company. Yeah. And through a series of mishaps that doesn't happen. But not only does that not happen, his work is seen by the editors of Big One who like it and as he's asleep, basically scan his work into a computer, which then publishes under the name Jimmy Who. Yeah. Work that is his to all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. And when he complains, they're just like, yeah, we sold none of your drawings, merely copied your style and artists have been doing that since the dawn of time. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 kind of this wonderful i mean dystopian in a completely different way from most dreads yes but a very dystopian idea of the future of art as much as anything else mm-hmm. you know i mentioned the titan reprints mm-hmm. that that were being done and titan started reprinting dread in 81 mm-hmm. and the books were relatively slow actually until 86 when they started like i said going monthly mm-hmm. but wagner and boland who did the first uh, the work in the first volume and and Wagner and, and everyone else who did the, the all the artists who did the work in subsequent volumes saw no reprint rights from those books, yeah. like none, mm-hmm. because IPC just were like, well, you, you know, we it's our work, we own it, we we can license it out to to whoever, right. and you don't have to know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't help but think that that's feeding into this, mm-hmm. feeding into Kenny Who a bit, but also you may or may not know, like the reason. Kenny Who's called Kenny Who is it's Cam it's Cam Kennedy who draws it. Mm-hmm. He was apparently trying to get into the States and someone misread his passport and thought that Kennedy was like his name and they're like Kenny Who and that's where the name comes oh, from. I did not know that. That's amazing. I knew that Cam Kennedy was, you know, is listed quite smart rightly as the co creator of, of Kenny Who. Um but yeah, well it's, and that's the weird thing is the fact that it is uh to me, because it's the big one, and of course, um, when Kenny corners the publisher or the edit, the editor in chief of the big one about him being ripped off, the the editor speaks in total Marvelese. You know, he's like, you well, know, I mean, even big one mm-hmm. feels like very aware of like the American publishing industry oh completely yeah instead of the you know big I mean? two it's just yes. the big one yeah absolutely no absolutely so it's very much a um it it kind of felt like a story that seemed like it might be more about american comics but is also just about the poor the just the pure shittiness of the comics industry you know like the the joke which You know, once or twice they pulled the kind of Abbott and Costello, who, that's what I'm asking you kind of thing, that they they get 
through pretty quickly. Yeah, it, it is actually very surprisingly quick that they they that they don't really take it further. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. But they do spend a a an, the different gag that they go for that I think lands even better. It is uh, when he's like, "Yes." You know, I'll get known in comics and then everyone will know my name. And it's just the people going, who, who, who? And I, I love, I love how completely and utterly jaundiced the idea, you know, the concept of being big in comics. Uh, Wagner and Grant and Kennedy are all mocking it, but mocking it in a very sort of different sadder kind of way. Yeah, it's it's not it's this very weird thing where they're not mocking Kenny who per yes. se. No. Like Ken, right. I think Kenny actually is treated with as much respect as any protagonist in a dredge trip is. Oh yeah. So actually. Yeah. Um but his ambition is inherently uh comedic. Right. It's comedic like, and like but, they know it's ridiculous. But it, it, it's weird. Apart from uh, a few, instead of fatties, we've got a couple of stories in here about wimps that seem very, um, you know, kind of lowbrow comedic, but but also very uh, unempathetic. Everything else actually seems suffused with sort of, um, again, just kind of more of an empathy, more of the humor is a little older and wiser and sadder in this volume yes. in a yeah. lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And in a way that really speaks to me, you know, there's little it, bits and touches in there that are just that, that hit, you know, it's, it's not only the humor, although I guess what I'm going to say is like, it's also humorous, but, um, you know, I'm thinking about the story about the woman who bills people, Yes, which for, is for, one for, of my favorite nothing. stories. That's a flawless story. You know, oh my god! Uh, but there's there's a certain again really melancholic humor about that. Yes, yeah, because yeah. it's it's almost as if it's a story where the because it's not a funny story per se. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not an outright comedy. It's instead a story where the joke is like the sad joke of. People can get away with this. Well, yeah. Like, there's, right. there's nothing illegal about what she's doing. No. It's just immoral, but immoral's fine. Well, I, I think to me, okay, there's a few, there's one of the things that I love, just like the art of Kenny Who is paid with thanks, which I adore. And again, this uh, volume opens like fucking gangbusters, because not only do you have Dread versus Dread, which is Dread versus a funhouse mirror of himself that is drawn They're by Kevin O'Neill. So it is the most grotesque funhouse mirror you can imagine. But it's also great. It's Dread versus a hyper fan. Yeah. A fan who is so much of a fan yes. that he meets the real thing and goes, you're not enough of Judge Dread for me. I'm a better Judge Dread than you. Yeah. And again, there's something in that as well. Yes. Or like they're very aware of like, there, there is a level of uh, danger mm -hmm. or, or mm -hmm. again, sadness mm -hmm. in people who, who identify so strongly with something that they can't accept the reality of it. Well, I, I think I, the thing that I uh, 
the thing that I think is interesting to me also about Dread versus Dread is you see the the cartoonish version of Dread who is literally making up laws on the spot and and killing people for them. And Dread shows up uh and one of the first things that he does and I don't necessarily know if they would have done this in earlier volumes is the very first thing that he does is he goes up to the two surviving Mega City 1 members and are like you didn't pay your exit tax. You've got to go back. Like he literally, the first thing that he does is essentially say, like, you broke the law, you, you've got to pay. And they're like, yes, anything, just get us out of here. And then from that point, of course, everything goes wrong. But kind of at the end, Dredd's uh, conclusion was essentially like, he was right, though. You know, there's only one Dredd and it wasn't him. And it's yeah, but it, but it's not even that like because that's more badass than what than the way it's done because he's literally like he's right there's only one right shame it wasn't him like it's done as this wonder because what I like a lot about the the law according to Judge Dredd is Dredd is not bothered by this pretender at all no like he's just not he's supremely confident. Because mm-hmm. he's just like, I'm, yeah, I'm Judge Dredd, whatever. You want to call yourself Judge Dredd? Sure. Okay, great. Go to town. No, right. There is no – the fact that Dredd, Dredd in a absolutely uh, as you would expect him to doesn't give this funhouse mirror – he doesn't even recognize it as a reflection. That is just so um, beyond – him in that sense and somehow makes him more like that thing not less so i don't know we may disagree but of course i'm like that paid with thanks and then the art of kenny who are the first three stories in this volume and each one just fucking kicked my ass but the paid paid with thanks and the art of kenny who are somewhere between like i i i personally think that paid with thanks is like an easy horror story, mm-hmm. but like that's almost closer to Kafka. And then the art of Kenny who almost seems like an easy mad comic story. That's closer to Kafka. Like at both <laughs> points, it's, it's just two totally different mixes that are, it's yeah. yeah. Just all about absurd. The uh, kind of like the absurdity. Yes. Of bureaucracy. Yes. It's it's the absurdity of the modern world, and not the Mega City One modern world. No, no, exactly. It's the absurdity of of the nineteen eighties, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. of what people like. I I for both of those stories, for Paid with Thanks and The Art of Kenny Who, I really see uh, Wagner and Grant, and I suspect more Grant, just because Grant's like later work has leaned in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels like it's it's them kind of going i can't believe what you can actually get away with yeah right right you know i can't i can't believe that this is just deemed okay mm-hmm. we'll satirize it honestly very slightly right in these trips yeah. because again paid with thanks is not a comedy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what i mean like it, it is like an, it is an easy horror story mm-hmm. like the, the end of it is 100 percent easy horror mm-hmm uh, you know, it's the the person who is billing. So we should explain for people who haven't read this. There, there is a woman who's basically has a scam that she sends people bills and people pay it because they don't look to see what the bill is for. Yeah, she bills them it's for billing them. 
which is wonderful, you know. And then uh, if they don't pay, she just like gives them a late fee, right? On board, and so she does this for someone who's dead, and they send a corpse <laughs> as payment. And then she, yeah, she, and then writes back and is like, "Well, I, I I don't accept payment of corpses. There's been a mistake." And so they send her two corpses. Yeah, and she the the punchline is she goes to investigate, and basically ghosts are like you're a ghoul taking money from people and she falls out a window to her doom at which point a bill falls into place into the viewer's eyeline with paid and fool written on it yeah yeah like that is 100% an EC horror story yeah like dread just sort of shows up as color commentary there yeah yeah exactly he's more he's kind of he shows up at the beginning and and a little bit of a narrator is much closer to yeah the EC horror narrator or even somebody like I don't know like the shadow who moves in and out of the character you know who's both a character and a narrator but he he serves no purpose the story is entirely about this character and but what's fascinating is again there's a point where he's basically like ah you know he's he's kind of like uh, you're a ghoul and she's like. I'm a responsible business person. Like I'm just, and she says very explicitly at one point, I'm the same as you. I just do my job and I'm firmly committed to it. And it, and, and that is the weird flip side here is throughout this, what you have mentioned in earlier volumes, Graham comes very explicitly into bloom here, which is there's a number of stories that make it, where it is just it's not subtext it's flat out text that the judges have made things worse and the judges more or less both can't see it and bo and disregard it because they are they're like because it's their job essentially yeah but so also the judges the are locked in, yeah the judges are locked into the system same as everyone else exactly and so ultimately is the billing woman like she creates a system for her own profit and she ultimately at a certain point continues to press on and rejects any the basically commits to the system to her death. And that is, um, again, a weirdly surprisingly uh, th thorough through line throughout some of these stories. So there's there's also the story about the about dread syndrome. Yes. You know, talking talking about that the judges have have made essentially like created this horror show. Mm -hmm. There's a story where, you know, all but the last two pages are a dream sequence on behalf of a citizen who feels that she is perpetually under threat of being uh discovered by the judges that basically she was it she spilled a strawberry jam sandwich and didn't yeah and didn't pick up her strawberry right. jam sandwich and keeps waiting for and them to bust in a buster yeah and it's revealed at the very end of the story that she is in a mental asylum mm -hmm. and she is just one of a number of people who are so fixated on the fact that they know they have broken the law in a small way mm -hmm. that they cease to function and the the Doctor tells Dread, we call it the Dread Syndrome. Yes, yeah, exactly. Dread's just like, okay, that's fine, right? So there's going to be. He actually says like a couple of thousand people or something. Yeah, if a, if few, a few thousand screwballs, screw uh huh, it's the price we've got to pay for law and order. I'm for it. Yeah, which again, like, there's so much in this book, which is the this this is a this is a terrible system. Yeah, 
this is a terrible system for everyone involved, including the judges. Right. And everyone is living in fear of the system. Well, yeah. The the last page has the you know the doctor saying like because Dredd basically is like no this is the price we got to pay and there's no other way to do it otherwise there'd be madness in the streets and the doctor says but how do we know only because you say so it's been so long since we tried any other way and he says that's dread says that's dangerous talk doc keep at it and you're liable to end up as one of your own patients and it's it's literally a threat and hanging over the doctor's head is you know the sign it's the judge dread psycho unit but it but it's also, you know, again, Judge Dredd, comma, psycho unit. Like, it, the the craziness is is quite, is, again, it's not, it's, it is the judges. They they really make it. And then that's followed up by I was this. I say, it's very nice strip. Strip is, is like a remake, again, of a, like an old Looney Tunes cartoon where, you know, Sylvester the Cat goes to Birds Anonymous like the you get a guy who actually an hour after he gets out from ISO block block eight, Skid Mullard is so tempted to like pull a crime. He's a petty crime addict and literally gets saved by Perp Aid, which is the AA version of and it and it's all just huge over the top absurd stuff and then he hits salvation at the end of first uh, part one. He's like, I can make it. I can, I can make it without, without pulling any crimes. I actually have my own power of determination. And the cliffhanger is him walking down the street towards dread. And the very next story is, is, you know, it's literally him doing, I've done nothing wrong. Why are you picking on me? And dread saying, why are you walking along talking to yourself? Seems pretty suspicious to me. Everything about that conversation, like Dread, yeah. he basically explains the situation, and Dread's like, "I don't care." Yep. Like, he actually says, "Why don't you do yourself a favor, Hug? Report for that lobotomy now. Yeah. We'll burn out all those nasty little urchins in a jiffy." Dread is actually saying to someone who, again, has not committed a crime, "Why don't you just get a lobotomy and save us all the effort?" Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's horrible. Right. And then on the next page, I am a judge-led mouth harassment's my job. Yeah, exactly. So it's such a long way from where we started, where Dread was just a hero. Yeah, he was a hero. He really was. And and Wagner and Grant and the artists in 2000 AD, they kind of did a, they walked a line. They managed to have their cake and eat it too for a long time where it was like, oh, the judges are, are corrupt. But dread isn't corrupt, you know. You were you or, kind of or the judges corrupt, but they're better than the than the lawbreakers. Yes, there was a, there was a lot of stories in the start, which was like you know, oh, these judges might be harsh, but they've got to be harsh, right? But yeah, but this is again, it's this is the ten year anniversary of of Judge Dread happens in this volume, and by that point, Wagner and Grant are like. Yeah, I mean they they have enough of a background in dread that they there's a, they've so laid the groundwork for expectations that they really can begin deconstructing them. But it is they're like kind of like yeah, you know what? You can't you, you you can't. This is the thing that is amazing about Judge Dread the Strip is at ten years in it's 
Dread has changed, but hasn't. But it's very much how the creators see him that have changed. And precisely because he is such a such this character, they the the deviation is so slight but so meaningful. Just something that he would never say two or three years earlier, they now very explicitly put in his mouth. Same way with Art of Kenny Who, where they make it a point, like um, when Kenny Who first gets in, he gets harassed by the judge who sees him come in. And it's kind of like, I don't like your work. It's weird, freaked out stuff. And it, and I remember when I first read it, I was kind of like, oh, wait, that, that can't be dread. You know, because it's sometimes they'll do that thing where they'll have the judge kind of be a dick. And you're like, oh, why is Dredd being a dick? Oh, that's not him. He's going to die on the next page. And there's Dredd on his lawgiver. But it's very explicitly, I flip back. I'm like, no, no, it is Dredd. Dredd specifically turns around and is the first one to say, you only have 24 hours in this town. And we're keeping you and we're, we're basically strip searching you and questioning you for the first three of them. So he is absolutely 100% the worst, uh, again, icon of, of petty bureaucracy, you know? And that is really like, that is really one of the, the things about this volume in particular. Yeah. Right. You become very aware that dread is, the figurehead for just a society that's utterly fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that Wagner and Grant aren't pretending any different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, Wagner and Grant are just like, yup, it's actually, you know, this is, this is a nightmare. Th- mm-hmm. This place is, is a disaster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's so strange. So reading this book as a whole, mm-hmm. it does feel that almost every story in this is, of a level of quality mm-hmm. that is really high. Yes. You know, like almost every strip in this does everything you want a dread strip to do. Yeah. Right. And they all feel thrilling and funny and, and enjoyable. And in some sense, throwaway isn't the right way of putting it, but it's not a mega epic. Mm-hmm. Right. No, it, right. Exactly. Strips. Yeah. Um, but they're all saying the same thing, right? Well, do you know what I mean? Like, and and this, this or maybe not all saying the same thing because there are some that are more like the bureaucracy is fucked, and some that like the citizens are fucked by the bureaucracy, or, right? Or, but like they come together for this incredibly cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, the entire book. I more often than not, I will say there's a couple of stories that did that I thought were uh, bummers. Um, and it's interesting to me because I do want to say, I do think, and this is the part that is very sad, is I think there's only one story in here that's by Ron Smith. And it's... Is there even a Ron Smith story? There is. It's the Hell's Packers, which oh, which itself yeah. has a little... But see, exactly. It's kind of like, eh, it's got a little bit of that of the the new dread nasty you know because it, it the the punchline is literally dread or one of the other judges being like yeah if you wanted to like kick ass and 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 crack in heads why didn't they just become judges you know like our our arrow squad does that every day and it was like Ugh. but it's a kind of i really had that feeling of like 
you know, there's so much, so much great art and so many dynamic artists and Wagner and Grant. Like, I don't know. I just kind of, I was like, I can't imagine that it was, I'd like to think that Wagner and Grant were just overworked, but I do feel that there was sort of a lack of synergy at that point between them and Ron Smith in the previous uh, case files that it, and it's a shame because I love so much of Smith's earlier stuff. I really do. But I didn't miss him at all. And when he showed up, it was kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, this, this, is, this guy. Yeah, yeah. Th- exactly. But I do have to say, it seems to be a fan favorite. It's one of the stories that's given an explicit shout out on the back. And I've seen it. It was one of the few stories that I'd seen recollected back in the 80s. I'm not, I'm not crazy about the Fists of Stan Lee, which... Is, I, I'm not crazy about the Fist of Stanley, but mostly because like it's just racist as shit. It, yeah, I mean it's, it's. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, Judge Dredd calls him Charlie Chan, and someone else calls him Yellow Peril. Yeah, yeah, which is just. Mm. And the worst part is being Scottish and having been alive in '86. I 100% believe that Wagner and Grant did not think they were being racist by seeing Charlie Chan. Oh, not at all. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's it. It's a, it's a racist as shit story. It's kind of got the, um, I mean, to me, it's kind it's, of, I a, mean, it's literally set up that goes nowhere. Yeah, in this exactly. It's right. literally, he shows up. It was kind of like them and maybe Barry Kitson wanted to take the piss on, you know, both Iron Fist and Master of Kung Fu, uh, which, I don't even remember if like 85, 86, if Master of Kung Fu, I thought it had been killed off by the shooter by then. Yeah. 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 So, but, you know, so I'm like, it doesn't seem like the craziest joke in the world. Like that really, for me, the only thing that's really interesting about it in a way is the idea that, oh, oh ha ha ha, it's an Asian dude called Stan Lee. Do you get it? Um, and there's also a little bit of, I, like the more interesting nose thumbing comes from the idea of dread, which started off again, as I keep talking about kind of this weird, like, is it going to be Pat Mills's dread or is it going to be Wagner's dread? You know, and Mills is so heavily in the let's do Marvel comics, but for Brits with dread. And this seems like such a, almost unnecessary victory lap of oh yeah like we don't need that at all we've got like we've got your we've got your what became of marvel comics which is a nonsense gibberish character that we're going to make a lot of really unfortunate racist jokes about um but then he just disappears and god help me i would feel very sad if he ever came back again but he really does. He kicks oh, no, Fred's he, ass. He does. Of course he does. He does. Stanley yeah. Kong. No, because it is set up. It literally is set up for something. But I want to say, it's like, maybe it's in, maybe it isn't in the next volume. For some reason, I think it's it's a while away. Okay. Before he comes back. Yeah. But maybe it, it really is the next volume. Okay. Okay. Because even that was, I mean, it really was, uh, he kicked my ass, but he'll be back someday. And I don't even know what he wants. And I was like, oh, please, God, let's just never have this character show up again. But, well, you, you say that, but like literally he has to show back up because 
he serves no purpose other than literally to come in and be like, I have kicked your ass, Judge Dredd. Well, yeah, no, exactly. The guy like, who kicked his some ass. Form of explanation. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but even kind of the idea of like, oh, the only man to ever beat Judge Dredd is back. Like, you kind of see that story, but I don't know. I was hoping at the time that it was kind of a... Um, uh, just a piss take of that kind of story. Like, you know, like, yeah. you know, that Wagner and Grant were so tired of the mega epic that they were just at this point just making fun of the idea that they were going to do one, you know, because it does feel a little bit, I don't know. It, it, oh, no, it, it, it's like, you're right. There's something about the Fist of Stanley that feels very much like a self-important first chapter. Yes, right, right. You know, that that, that especially because, again, Think about Blockmania, right? Exactly. It, it wouldn't be right. entirely out of the bounds yeah. for the next issue to be like, you know, Ned's prog. Yeah. Stanley's real target was... Right. Exactly. You know, whatever. Ex- exactly. While while Stanley was kicking Judge Dredd's ass, Dick Giordano actually poisoned Mega City 1's po- water supply, and now no one can actually see color appropriately. Or, you know, whatever bone to pick they had. <laughs> So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a weird, um, that those two were the only ones where I was like, eh, but like that Saturday fight, the, the weird wham breakup story, I, not only is the art just great in it, but it's also weirdly, um, again, nihilistic, like dread is comes. <laughs> Like, yeah, there's so much nihilism in this. Dread lets the entire fight go ahead purely because, as he says, Ed, sometimes you just want to see a good fight. Yeah. You're never able to enjoy a good fight is what right. he actually says. Right. But the judge is like, why didn't you break the fight up? Yeah. And he's just like, I wanted to see two men beat each other up. Exactly. You Sometimes you just got to appreciate that. Which, again, at every stage, like that fight, although it looks lovely – is shown as pretty barbaric. And when you see Dredd saying that, again, the presentation is these two guys just beat the crap and injured. Like, there's nothing laudable about it at all. So it it's a very dark form of... There's some, some of these... You know how, like, uh, previous volumes, Dredd would get in his sort of, you know somewhere between like a kind of punchline, you know, that there was sort of like a slightly crueler version of a dad joke. And you'd be like, Oh, ha ha ha. This time, like that one, it's kind of like the joke is kind of like, again, we're, 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 we like this character. Like, you know, his punchline at the art of Kenny, who is something like, yeah, now you're going to be drawing some time. And I'm like, that's not funny. Like they really go out of their way to make you sympathize with Kenny Who, and when he, oh, yeah, you get no, that no, exactly. laugh line Dread applied to him, bully. yeah, very much. And it was funny listening to this comparison. Like it's such a um, such a shock to the system reading the restricted case files, where it's literally Dread is the only guy pure enough to beat the devil. You know, to this volume where it's like, hey, Dread is. A thug. He's really good yeah, at what? what he does, and in some cases, he's better than the alternative, but not in every case, you know? Yeah, and it's funny because the next volume, the next mega epic, mm. um, 
A is the one that breaks up Wagner and Grant. Hmm. And what breaks up Wagner and Grant is the question of how much of a bully is Dredd. Right, right. Yeah, I, I because believe they, it. Because they have both agreed at this point that Dredd is a bully. Right. You know, even in the stories where Dredd is a hero, mm-hmm. he's almost a begrudging hero. Yeah. <laughs> like the disdain he shows here is is amazing. There's there's the the one towards the end, there's a story towards the end where he goes to rescue hostages. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Whitey story. Yes. Yeah, the return of Whitey, the 10 years yeah, on I, story. Yes. Yeah. And he takes off his armor. Mm-hmm. And the the fellow judge is basically like, "You're crazy! Like, you know, you, why are you giving your surrender yourself for these citizens?" And he's like, "You know, anytime a judge thinks that they're better than a citizen, they should quit." And the net line is him going, "If anyone's going to shoot the citizens, it's me." Yes, right. And it's such exactly. a great thing. So it's, it's this yeah. moment where you're, you're like, "They can't give him a hero moment." Yeah, no, they really like, can't. Like, in this they story. just can't let themselves do it anymore. And the thing, they can't like, and, and they find glee in that. Oh, they yeah. find glee making it look like he's a hero for a second, and then he will do something like that, or he will bully Kenny. Who, yeah. like, he's you're right that that you know now you can draw me some time. Mm-hmm. He's one. Mm-hmm. Like the punchline is there as a really dark humor. Yeah, uh, on Margaret Grant's part, because it's literally there to go. Yeah, he can't even win well. Yeah. Right. Like he has to rub it in. He has to make this guy feel smaller. Well, I guess what I'm saying is is it's the same thing that he was doing before, but now we really do see it like kind of for what it is. Like before when it's kind of like, you know, like I'm I'm the good guy, so I get the last laugh line. I get the punchline to finish the story. And and in these you really see it again like that sometimes you just want to see a good fight. Where it's like, that is not what you watched was not a good fight, you know? And there, there is, it's, it really is, like I said, it's, it's a deconstruction. And the thing that's great is Wagner and Grant really have kept this, it, it has evolved, but it's, I feel like it's also been something that they've kept on a leash. And I think by the time it comes out, which again, is a decade in, it's kind of like, uncorking a wine like when it's finally right you know what i mean like yes but also they do it so slowly and so gradually yes that you're not shocked well that's it i mean like you like you compare this dread to the dread of 10 years ago and it's a marked change which we feel really really strongly because we were just reading the the restrictive files right exactly right but if you were just reading this weekly this wouldn't necessarily register, no. which is which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like each stage, it's like they just managed to to get it. Uh, I love the volume. I love the stories in this volume. They uh, also we got to talk about like to me. You mentioned the fact that some of these stories are long because they're like seven or eight pages. But holy shit, what they can do in them, like. There's that whole peeper story that's basically like Rear Window told. Oh, in... it's it's so great! It's Rear Window if Rear Window was somehow darker. Yes, yeah, even darker, and then fits perfectly. Is slotted perfectly into Mega City One, and it's seven pages, and it it just the stories in this really are just 
you know, we've gone on about earlier volumes about how it's like, oh, you're just in awe of the craft. But I'm in, at every stage. I'm like, oh, the craft is amazing. Like that Attack of the 15-Foot Woman story that follows it. Again, there's that weird like, oh, we're doing Rear Window and we're doing Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, you know? And it's just like, what? It, you know, One of the things that's, that's genuinely, uh, maybe not surprising, but looking at this volume as a whole, mm-hmm. it is very, it reminds me very much of Tom King's line about he's writing comics so quick that like there's no subcon like it's just subconscious there's no yeah analysis there's no reflection yep we're getting that here because Wagner Grant are literally writing what they're watching and listening to and reading yeah right you get the wham story you get rear window you get attack with 50 foot woman mm-hmm. um there's one point this the story about the artery like the the crime bosses who are going to sever the artery yes where the opening narration literally rips off the tagline for the Stallone film Stallone Cobra. Cobra. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm aware because I, as someone who was alive, was like, holy shit, I recognize. And I even had to look to see. Yes, me too. I was like, when did Cobra come out? Like, did this predate Cobra or is this a long time after? No, it's it's like months after. Months Um, after. There's a Michael Jackson story. Yes. Yeah. Like, there's all this stuff that is very, very, very clearly them going, we've got to write Dread. Yeah. Okay, what are we writing Dread about? Oh, I saw Rear Window last night. Right. We've got to write Dread. What are we writing Dread about? Oh, Michael Jackson's got a new album out. Okay, what are we writing Dread about? And it, but nonetheless, these stories are all fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing that really is the kind of the best about it. The weird, The weird thing about this is... Listeners who have listened to us go on and on about, say, our love of Jack Kirby or, again, you know, sort of dealing with that that idea of, you know, King talking about, like, when you get these stories where comics sort of hit this just hyper intensity of ideas and speed. And yet I think what's amazing, again, sort of like in Kirby in his own way, the craft that is on display here. While while doing it at such a breakneck speed, like that itself is as much the sort of, you know, the people talk about that, and I'm guilty of this, talking about the delight of comics being kind of that juxtaposition of like high art and low art or art and words. But the the idea between the level of craft to to create and tell a complete story that lands in seven pages and and yet to tell it that's like a weirdly more poignant retelling of attack of the 50 foot woman or this weird two part you know riff on the phantom of the opera like you said it's just shit that they were like uh oh, you know what i watched on the telly yeah maybe we could do a story about this for dread yeah and only this one he falls in love with the guy oh yeah and it's great and he's just a crazy robot yeah and we'll do it where we actually point out the weird thing about this which of course you know is when the guy's like i don't understand why uh this thing loved me like, Dred's like, yeah, I don't either. You're nothing special. Like, this weird, like, that's such a weird punchline for the Phantom of the Chopra, which is just a goofy-ass story with, like, as so many of these goofy-ass stories with beautiful art. And then, but the punchline is this weirdly sad, poignant, 
kind of right on the edge of being mean. We, Graham, what's great about this episode of Drock, I think, is uh, that we are releasing it right before Christmas. And the Christmas story in this <laughs> volume is kind of the epitome of everything that we're talking about, right? Okay, okay, let's talk about the Christmas story, because the Christmas story here is so strange to me. Really? Okay. Yeah, because yes, it is, yeah. Because there's no punchline, for want of a better way of putting it. Like, there's well, there's the narration. So the Christmas story is, basically, there's an omniscient narrator who's changing things in order to make this dramatic, like, you know, here's a, a lonely schlub. What if we make him violent and triggered by the word Christmas? Here's the love. Here's the woman who's the love of his life. What if we make her look ugly and she can't help mention Christmas, so he keeps killing her? Look, they're fighting Judge Dredd. And it goes all the way through. I mean, all the way through. He gets arrested. They turn into gas and escape the judges. They get put back into their normal bodies and have happily ever after. And Dredd says, happy Christmas at the end. And all of this is from the omniscient narrator being like, what if we change this? What if we change this? What if we change this? The characters are also aware of this because they're commenting about yes. the changes that have been made. Right. And there's no punchline. Oh, there is? It's this thing. Oh, Graham, there's two punchlines. This is so funny. Okay, maybe I'm using punchline wrong, but what do you, what do you see as the punchline? Okay, the, the very first punchline is, is how I think they conceived of the story. Is how do you have the dread in this volume that is a bully and a fascist and a guy who is pretty much anti-fun, how do you have it so that he is smiling, handing out presents <laughs> and saying, oh, yes. Merry only Christmas? By only by literally like pointing out that he's out of character. Yes. Exactly. So they create a whole story where everything goes, where because they're, that, and so that's the punchline. Because they explicitly say on the first page that we are changing reality, um, at the end of it, when you get that punchline, you're like, oh, kind of like, oh, this is why they're doing it. But I also feel like, I don't know if you remember, but there was a point when we were doing this around like volume three or four where I was reading this stuff and I was high and I was really like getting very disturbed by the fascistic elements of dread and i was like that, that was yeah that was far more recent that was like volume eight or something was it i thought it was like through four or five or something but it was it was my like how i learned to stop worrying and love the dread basically because it seemed to me like just as they got to the point of you know where it felt like every story was like what are like are wagner and grant like pro-fascist are they anti-fascist and and literally the next story is kind of them being like we're having fun you know and i think one of the things that i think is interesting about the christmas story is it is it's this weird grimish shit story for the first five or six pages or seven pages because i think this is a tenor and and you're just like and and they're specifying like these are our choices. Like we're at one point when they do this thing where they make his, uh, the, you know, they make the guy in the Santa outfit. Suddenly he turns into, you know, we've got to pep you up a bit, Bill. How about a gruesome steel claw? And how about a grass, glass plate in his head? So you can yeah, see exactly. his brain sloshing about and he won't get far without a weapon. 
Now, let's see. Far from being a kindly, generous man, Bill Hudnut is, in fact, a raving psycho. And he's like, I am? And he absolutely hates Christmas. I do? And, and it's this weird... It uh, Again, it's uh, to use the Looney Tune frame of reference, it's like something out of Chuckamuck, where it's like the hand of the writer and the artist are there. and But just just instead of... Like, how do I put it? Like, there's a little... To me, there's a little bit of... It's not quite an apologia, but there's a little bit of the meta for when this whole volume gets too disturbing. And again, so for me, the first punchline is, you know, they get they get dread to, you know, be in a thing where he's like petting kids and smiling, patting kids on the head and smiling and wishing them a Merry Christmas. The second punchline is... Grant and Wagner being like, these are all stories. Like there's a little bit of the, we are telling stories. Um, and the reason why we're doing them is, how do I put it? Like there's a little bit of a, we're dodging stereotypes. We've got to make this interesting. We've got to, we've got to have a villain. And so the weird Christmas gift that Wagner give us is this is to me in the midst of this darkest volume yet is kind of a, you know what, don't worry about it. We're still just telling stories. You know what I mean? Like their their reality check for how dark things are actually supposed to be in this volume to me in the Christmas story is a little bit of a wink and a nudge being like, don't worry, like things are bad, but they're not that bad. That's so interesting. I I totally see what you're saying. <laughs> and you're uh, like, but you're just wrong, Jeff. <laughs> no, it's not even that you're wrong. It's that I don't read it as that. Okay. I see. Um, I make sense. I, I don't see it as a, a the like a, a pressure valve. I don't see it as venting that pressure at all. I see it as ramping up that pressure. See, I would agree with you if it wasn't for the fact that you literally have that couple – Turn to steam. They return to their old bodies. Oh, sure. They get, get married get and they're literally told like, and the judges forget about them and they literally live happily ever after, you know? Sure. But everything before that, again, you know, I, I again, I get what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I do. But it feels, it sounds dumb, <laughs> but it feels that the point, the fact that they point out oh we're going to give these two a happy ending really underscores that they don't to anyone else in this volume well that's um, not entirely which, which, true that's there's one more there's one other happy ending and it's given to an artist it's the flip side of the kenny who story which is the taxidermist yes yeah that that is true you are correct sorry you're like, you're like no, that's I not my point that thing. Mm -hmm. but um the other thing I was going to say is when I was saying like it doesn't have a punchline, yeah. what I mean is – and this is, again, very anal. The fact that the characters are aware that these changes have been made to them mm -hmm. and that's not addressed <laughs> for one of them. There's right. not explained. Right. And I'm like it feels it feels like there's a page missing. Mm. It feels like there's a – it feels like there's literally a punchline to that. Mm. Maybe. Because the fact that they're aware – that that's happening and they're like why is this happening mm -hmm. and there's no answer to that mm. like i mean there is it's the, the author right right but that's not even addressed in the story yeah and i mean you could like, have a caption of that you, yeah you yeah that's it. it like there's no 
because you know you're likening it to Looney Tunes, right? But right. Looney Tunes, would, I feel, would have someone either directly address the author, mm-hmm. or there'd be some sort of like anti-stinker in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I right. and that's missing here, which I'm, and, which makes the story for me. That don't get me wrong, that's part of what I appreciate about the story. I guess because that's how it ties together with everything else. Like everyone in this, it, it, the whole volume is about people being destroyed by the system created by someone else. You know what I mean? And in this Christmas story, you have that happen to this couple and then they get spared pretty much so you can have a happy ending because it's Christmas. But, you know, but everything else in a way, I guess you're right, the darker the darker side of it is that there's no real difference from the quote unquote authors trapping these people in a, a literal nightmare that they don't question from say the woman suffering from dread syndrome who's like locked up in the psycho ward you know or kenny who like there's no the 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 question is always why me not why this you know what i mean yes so yeah. i in to me at least it feels thematically sound i guess you know, and kind of where yeah, and I, and, and, and I like I can see that. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like that's very uh, the antithesis feels maybe a bit too strong, right? It's very much not my experience. Mm-hmm. And instead, where you were seeing like this is them winking at the audience and saying like we're not that bad. In a weird way, like my takeaway from the story was they are that bad. Well, that could be because yeah. mm-hmm. it's we're ruining these people's lives for our entertainment. But it's okay. We can switch it back afterwards. Well, you know, and I, 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 and I get the, like the Morrison um, Coyote Gospel right. out of it, right? You know, like the Morrison's Animal Man, where it's like we are just fucking up your lives right. for entertainment. Well, but my, which, which is a much darker take. We, it, it is a much darker take. But I think Wagner and Grant are very much like, but these aren't real people. You know what I mean? Like this no, is yeah. a story, and so I think there is a. There's not the. There's never going to be that though they would they could never get to the Coyote Gospel or any part of Animal Man. In fact, weirdly enough, we should talk about the Jack the Ripper story in here because it it actually ties directly into this. Weirdly, I mean in a in a super tangential way, but the but it is very much of a piece for Wagner and Grant to be like, yeah, no, this is all made up. And I feel like that's their whole point. They don't have to have it addressed in story. Like the characters don't think twice about it Um, in part. And again, I feel like I am, I'm probably, I'm talking out my ass in a way. Like, I'm like, yeah, no, it's a great statement about existentialism. And it's also them being like, who cares? Like, you know. Yes. And it can be both. I think it is. Yeah. Because, Let's face it, Wagner and Grant are both writers who I think can have greater ambition, mm-hmm. but are also very realistic about the extent of that ambition, how successful that ambition can be. Right. And so would make a joke about it if called on it. Right. Well, I mean, that's... You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it seems very in keeping for them <laughs> to, like, say something that is, that is uh, a very serious, intensely felt point right. right but if questioned on it at all 
just be like, ah, it's just a story. We're just having a laugh. Well, and I mean, yeah. in that sense, that, that uh, again, it, as we continue to look into the hall of mirrors of writers and artists and creators, you've got that, you've got the Slick Dickens story, which if sure. only I, by... Slick Dickens. Slick, Slick Dickens, Jeff. Yeah. If you ever, ever needed a porn name. Slick Dickens oh, is right absolutely. There. Slick Dickens is hilarious. And the whole story, but for an accident of um, where it appears in history, is a, an incredibly savage satire of Grant Morrison's The Invisibles before he goes on to write it. You know what I mean? Like, it... <laughs> No, it's very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who don't know, who again, who haven't read this, Slick Dickens is literally Judge Dredd comes across the uh, essentially Jerry Cornelius slash King Mob of criminals who was great and is like sexy and cool and gets away from the the uh, the judges and it turns out that it's it's fiction. Yeah. It's been written by an inept author. Yeah, Truman <laughs> Caput. Yeah, which is also yeah, great. Who, who's yeah, who's been doing the crimes shittily <laughs> in real life as research for the book. <laughs> You know, which is it's a great joke. You yeah. know, it's really, really fun. Yeah. Um Slick Dickens. I I actually like stand <laughs> up the first time. I would I actually made note that was just like Slick Dickens. <laughs> oh man. This volume is so good. It's funny, I like I scrolled to that and I just realized that we didn't talk at all about Varks. Which oh is, god, Varks. Like, Fucking Varks, man. That story scarred again, me. Why can Grant literally writing what they've just watched or listened to right yes because marx is aliens yeah it's aliens play for laugh including again kevin o'neill doing fucking great art but sigourney bean yes sigourney bean i just it's such a it judge dread in varx yeah it's like a um it's it is it's like an eight pager that is just them kind of riffing on aliens that actually like i said it creeped me out that story creeped me the Why? fuck out. Well, part of it is I have to say Kevin Kevin O'Neill's art, I love it, but it it is uncomfortable. Like I don't he he can draw Which is kind of his thing, right? Right, of course. Right? So I mean, talk about a perfect match. But I guess the part that really bums me out is Varks is another one of those stories that that um you know it kind of Opens at the end, flash you know, flashes back media res, and so the this alien that's literally devouring some an alien's eating my mum on page one, like the alien sort of escapes from dread and runs off yelling vark vark vark, and you end- wait you, you didn't you didn't say the punchline so the, an alien's eating my mummy yes is what the kid says page one and page two is literally a splash page of the alien <laughs> eating the mother yes right the back we're going drunk kid wasn't lying <laughs> you're right i love that i love yeah. that so much yeah yeah no but the uh because it's it's like sigourney bean and her three boys or four boys like out on vacation on Proxima Proxima and of course they they literally drag they literally go out into an area that they're told to stay away from and that because they're awful spoiled children and they're like yeah we got lost in the brush and something got us and it made us bleed and you know the the mean looking tour guide is like 
you know, uh, I hope you're, I hope these lads of yours didn't wander off the path. Like in a real, it's great. It really sells the fact that they're so, he comes off as so threatening that she lies and says like, oh no, of course not. And then what ends up happening is they begin slowly turning into these creepy alien creatures. And because it's so slow and because it's all body horror transformation, it's, it's to me, it's just way more creepy because the, the, well, the other thing is it, because it's O'Neill. Yeah. The difference between like the kids being normal yeah. and the kids being monstrous kind of blurs. Yes. No, because because exactly. because o- O'Neill is is a big fan of like hyper exaggerating right emotion right? right right so you see the kids like the first even then the first time she's like hey you guys didn't go off the path did you one of the kids is actually a werewolf right <laughs> like it's actually a werewolf yeah so then when you see them next and they're all looking like they're all clearly changing but are they clearly changing or are they all hyper excited right. because it's O'Neill? Right, exactly. No, and I think that's it. They they start, it, he really straddles that line where it's like, is it O'Neill sort of, he's kind of riffing on the grossness of teenage boys, you know, like they're, they're all, they all start to turn into teenagers. Like they start the bulging of the eyes, the twisting of the limbs, and they start looking a little more monstrous and their skin starts drying out. But then when it literally starts splitting open and things starting coming out of it, like, how do I put it? Like, it's not, it's like the easiest story in the world. It's just kind of a little, it's just a little riff, but O'Neill's art, like, I just felt intensely uncomfortable during it. It really creeped me out. And and I think exactly on that sort of visceral way that they intended. Like, it did exactly well, what it was supposed to, you know? It's funny. Hearing you say this just reminds me, like, remember Kevin O'Neill was the only artist banned by the Comics Code Authority? Oh, God, I forgot that. Really? Did I know that? Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's hilarious. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, and it was because of uh, God. What was it? It was one of the, the his uh, Green Lantern shirts with Alan Moore. Oh, was it the story where they go to that like fucked up planet? Like it's yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I get it because I remember reading that, and of course, I was a grown ass man and being really uncomfortable. Yeah, that's. I mean, he just that that is a dude that draws like flesh in the most nasty and testicular of ways. And it just blah, blah. Anyway, yes, all that, every, everything that, that O'Neill is, is great at, he brings to the game here. And it's so funny. Cause like, remember when he was drawing it in the house style, was that, was that in the, uh, restricted that, that files, was the, or was that, that was the restricted files. That was yeah. literally the last episode we did. Yeah, exactly. And he's drawing in this weird, like, you know, I can do it in a, a house style, and it and it does work. There's a few pieces that are kind of like, eh, but here they're like, shit. Why should you do that? Draw it like fucking Kevin O'Neill, and he's like, yeah, I will. And it's just like, yeah, it's it's Ooh. genuinely great because yeah. his his two things here are just are so Kevin O'Neill. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like it's so they, good. They could, not, they could not be more Kevin O'Neill. Yeah, 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 yeah. We should also talk about the fact that I, I know you're not a fan, but like the Brendan McCarthy strips in here are so Brendan McCarthy. Oh, I am. I'm a, I am I do. I love the McCarthy strips in here. That's like Atlantis, that three-parter, and the... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Just fucking phenomenal. No, 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 I no, think no. they're so McCarthy. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Atlantis in particular has some shockingly good visuals. Oh, Jesus, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's one of those things. And that's the thing. Like, Atlantis, I kind of started off by being like, oh, this is, like, it's sort of the closest to sort of quote-unquote typical dread story. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, okay, this is one where it's like the art's really going to elevate it. But that three-parter, which for those who who want these sort of synopses, Atlantis is a three-parter about a series of murders that is happening in the underwater city of Atlantis, which is kind of a midway point between uh, Mega City One and I think it's called Britsit, which is basically the UK uh, version of the Mega City. This halfway point, there's mysterious, they find a body locked in the, the uh, teeth of this sort of mega manta ray. And it starts them investigating and leads them to Atlantis, which is almost sort of like more like Atlantic City than Atlantis. And there is uh, what you think is first a woman, then you find out is a couple and eventually a full family that is um, murdering uh, 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 innocents, like luring them to back to their um, newlyweds, back to their apartment to... Uh, poison them and then rob them of their savings and because the guy is actually has access to the lower levels and he basically like scoots the bodies out the out into the water where they get eaten by the manta rays they've been doing this for a while now because they're being blackmailed by their doctor who threatens to reveal that their son is actually a mutant their son which they've been hiding away in the apartment and again in some ways, I thought, oh, this is kind of like a dread story. Like, we've had the stories where it's basically your kind of typical crime story and then dread comes in and solves it. And I figured the only real difference was going to be, you know, McCarthy's amazing art. But in fact, again, because everything in this volume really just really seemed to resonate like a gong, uh, the two things that I think are interesting in the story particularly are, A, the fact that, again, it's very explicitly said that part of the reason why this family is doing this is because the son will be taken away from them if it's revealed that he's a mutant. So they are being blackmailed precisely because of sort of the inhumane uh, society that they live in that the judges have set up where simply having a child that is different is illegal at this point. The other flip side about it that I love is it is a crime story that comes to me much closer to being like Jim Thompson. Like uh, Thompson's got a couple of different modes. And so some people might disagree because a lot of what people love about Jim Thompson is his ability to get into the brains of psychopaths like in The Killer Inside Me. But this actually reminds me a little bit of The Grifters or mm-hmm. especially The Getaway where by as the family is trying to get away from dread and are hatching plans as the net closes in on them, they all their resentments of one another, all the little tiny, teeny mistakes, this quote-unquote loving family that's under a certain amount of pressure slowly really does just get revealed as this hotbed of resentment. And that, to me, is very Thompson-esque, where the the real crime is loving another person, you know, because you can't... Which is literally the punchline of the story. 
Oh yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, that is. So it's 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 a it's a it's a popping little uh, little uh, story. I gotta say, it's yeah, uh, I, I really like it. But yeah, mm-hmm. the, the the last line is right saying love there ought to be a law against it. Oh yeah, I totally just kind of skimmed over that. But you're right. Yeah, oof, oof. I say. Uh, while we're talking about artistic high points of the volume, it's a really odd volume visually. I want to yes. say that because you've got McCarthy, you've got Kevin O'Neill doing great stuff the jose ortiz chapter is i mean i just fucking love jose ortiz yes i never knew he did dreads and i love his dreads which is like weirdly angular yeah and and looking like he's been like squished i i I do love it though but otherwise like you have some really weak art in here too yeah Um, there is in the shooting party is pretty weak yeah Uh, barry and stuff is pretty weak yep um, John Higgins stuff, I think is, I mean, it's partially it's that John Higgins stuff isn't really to my taste, mm-hmm. but like, I'm, I'm not really digging it. It's also funny to realize that like Higgins is drawing these dreads as he's coloring Watchmen. Wow. That's insane. Right. Yeah. Isn't that nuts to think about? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so it's a really uneven volume art wise. So again, you've got Cam Kennedy art in there though. So, you know, it, it can't be that bad. Well, see, um, the Kennedy art's great. The, the art in the, the John Higgins art in the Phantom of the Chopra, I thought was actually really pretty great. I didn't, you know, you've got McCarthy, you've got that amazing, again, sort of semi boland art in the, in the punch up fight. Um, uh, God, who's doing that? Is that... Uh, it's um, Cliff Robertson. Right, Cliff Robertson. Even the attack of the 50-foot woman. Well, because there's there's three oh, stories Leach. in here. Gary Leach is fucking awesome, isn't he? Oh, my God. Every one of his pieces are just so dynamic to me, you know? And even uh, Gibson is, you know, I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, his Tomb of the Judges, which... Which again feels the most evergreen of a dread story in that it's just sort of, it's of a sort of gentle, stickier sort of dread than than we're used to seeing. But um, but I really like the art on it. The art on the witness, uh, which again is McCarthy. Like there's just a lot of uh, there's. I just thought the volume here was mostly strong. Like you said, the stuff that's weak really does show up but like they shoot djs don't they is barry kitson and that's it's pretty decent it's it's not a bad i think it's not bad uh the taxidermist is cam kennedy right and that's yeah like, and kennedy and kennedy is just i mean kennedy is just a really great artist yeah and but like his his stuff in the taxidermist is really really great but again you know that's followed by like the interrogation is just a few chapters after that. And that's right. Uh, Raymond's being like, yeah. Well, yeah. But like before I felt like just two volumes before those guys really dominated, you know, Mm -hmm. or like, um, you know, but yeah, even I like, even when there's stuff that didn't right click, like, I don't know. It's it overall. I, I think there's, far fewer clunkers than the last couple of volumes have had. But yeah, there's everyone, it, it sort of makes it stand out more. There's also those weird things like when um, the naval maneuvers where it's Jeff Anderson, where it's like, yeah, they, they just, the, it's close, but it's just not quite right. And it's weird to me how much dread when dread looks wrong, it sort of looks like, recycled underground comics from the 70s i don't quite know what what's going on there that makes that the case 
Um, oh, so can I talk, since you mentioned the amazing art by Jose Ortiz, the Night of the Ripper and how that's such a weird, um, that's such a weird comic book confluence of... Yes. Okay, so Night of the Ripper has Jack the Ripper snatched from a time machine and dragged to the, you know, the modern day Mega City One and much it's in a, in its own way it's a beautifully done reprise of the similar um kind of piss take that Wagner and Grant did where they threw a bunch of um you know uh World War II German you know uh fighter planes into Mega City 1 and they basically were like where the fuck are we and they died similarly yes. Jack the Ripper shows up basically is like where the fuck am i this is crazy like is being chased by dread and literally blows himself up by jamming his a uh, laser knife into a, a chem tank and the punchline is is like you know well we will never know who he was now and dread says yes but we clued up one mystery why jack the ripper ripper never killed again now so again it's a it's just a weird a one-off story, but weirdly it connects to what you and I were talking about earlier, which unfortunately I can't. I'm like, ah, I forgot what it was that you said, Graham, where I'm like, this clicks. It's so <clears throat> there's a, there's a story. Are you familiar with um, the prowler at the edge of the world? I am not. Okay. This is literally a story that I barely remember that Harlan Ellison wrote back in the 70s that I think was published in Dangerous Visions, but I read in one of Harlan Ellison's endless short story collections because he managed to publish every story four times. Prowler at the Edge of the World is a story in which Jack the Ripper is pulled from the past to the future, and he is an anachronistic figure who at first... Well, here, hold on. Let me... Wait, I, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Wasn't this written in the 60s and wasn't Ellison really upset about the Star Trek episode that has uh, Jack the Ripper in it? Actually... Because he, he thought it was a ripoff? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Maybe, because yes, there is the Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World and you're right. The whole Jack the Ripper thing that was the city on the edge of forever, which was his Star Trek story that got fucked up that he was so pissed about that he went on No, no, but... Prowler, Prowler in the Edge of the City of the Edge of the World, which apparently came out in 67. Uh, Ooh, look at there's you. A, there's yeah. a Star Trek episode called Wolf in the Fold, uh -huh. which, which is, oh, right. uh, is a Jack, Jack the Ripper. Ripper. That's right, yeah. which is written by, I want to say, Robert Block. And not that that matters, really. But um, so, right. So Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World. Uh, the plot summary is Jack the Ripper appears in a sterile futuristic metropolis where anyone is free to do whatever they want, however arcane or immoral. He's brought before uh, Juliet, a girl named after the Marquis de Sade's Juliet. He kills her to the delight of a city denizen who is her grandfather. He's returned to the London of his own time where he commits another of his infamous killings and he's surprised to discover there are other mental presences or personalities coexisting within his own mind, commenting on the brutality of his acts as if they were spectators at a theatrical performance or aesthetes uh, critiquing a work of art in a museum. Yes, I am recapping by reading directly from Wikipedia. Although recognizably human in form, the future city's denizens have powers of matter manipulation, time travel, and telepathy. 
They can both read and manipulate Jack the Ripper's mind. They proceed for their own malign amusement to mentally expose him to his own subconscious lusts, desires, and petty hatreds. Prior to their interference, he'd suppressed his awareness of these urges. He realizes that he'd persuaded himself that his killings were purely moralistic in intent, meant to draw attention to the injustices, inequalities, social wretchedness, and debauchery of industrial Victorian society. To Jack's despair, his actual base motivations are fully revealed to him by the city's denizens, after which they delight in his ensuing psychological anguish. He is recalled to the city of the future by its inhabitants. Enraged, he kills one of his tormentors. Jack is fooled by the city's denizens into believing that this murder has caused a breakdown in their society and they've lost control of the city's functioning. He's implicitly led to believe that he is all, has all the power and is an uncontrollable random evil in their presence. He embarks on a killing spree to terrify the city's residents and punish them for their manipulation of him. After brutally murdering scores of city denizens in a veritable frenzy of bloodlust, Jack learns to his horror that the city's denizens have only manipulated him again to sate their decadent desires for entertainment. The surviving denizens disarm him, leaving to roam the city streets aimlessly. He cries aloud that he really is a bad man, a man to be respected and feared rather than mocked and thrown aside. So... Uh, there's, there is, depending on what you believe, a lot to unpack or not unpack. Night of the Ripper is essentially on, you could look at it as a piss take where Jack the Ripper is pulled to Mega City One, a futuristic city, but unlike Prowler in the city at the edge of the world, where Jack, and also the reader, from the point of view of the reader, seems to be an unstoppable uh, anachronism, um, mm-hmm. capable of killing everyone, is, you know, ultimately revealed to me, you know, manipulated. But for a while there, he believes that he actually is, uh, that he has power and agency and all these things. Um, he, how do I put it? This the image of Jack the Ripper running a loose in a futuristic society crossed with another one of Harlan Ellison's stories, Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man, are actually influences on Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, where Moore has had talked in interviews about how the image of, you know, essentially an anachronistic Jack the Ripper becomes an anachronistic Guy Fox destroying mm-hmm. the city of the future. Uh, similarly, as we were kind of talking about Jack, like dread is more or less revealed to what he thinks is his purpose is in fact, you know, the fact that he's just a killer and a thug. He's not actually, um, he, there is no virtue to his killing and further, it only really exists for the amusement of, um, the audience, again, kind of treading on the, the the area of, you know, dread in this volume and what we see him as a little bit of the Christmas story where it's like, hey, we're just doing these things up, you know, for people's amusement. And ultimately, I feel like there is um, underneath it, Ellison's idea of Jack the Ripper as essentially a dangerous anachronistic force is how he thinks of the writer and a lot of his under under uh the undercurrent of despair 
it has a little bit to do with the idea that the writer, you know, this lone individual is ultimately just has no agency and ultimately is used and discarded and tossed aside the way that Ellison claims feels that he was by Hollywood at that point in his career. Does I would love to be like, so clearly Night of the Ripper is their master statement on everything in the volume, but it's clearly not. It's just a weird, <laughs> it's a weird confluence of events, Graham, that I thought that you would well, appreciate hearing about. The, the other thing is this is um, Night of the Ripper didn't make me think of any of that. Sorry, Jeff. It didn't make <laughs> me think of the Michael Jackson story like three episodes earlier. Mm, right. Which is funny. Tell me about that because that story – I totally missed the point of if there was one other than you guys think that Michael Jackson's cool, but he's really awful. <laughs> yes, that and also everyone has terrible taste, which is another subtext of that because Jackson oh, yeah. comes back, is cryogenically unfrozen. Right. Uh, they, they actually say more or less like his brain has melted. He performs as a zombie and everyone loves it. So there is a, like there is, it, there's a double right. um, implicit criticism of the audience in there. Yeah. But – it's also a figure from the past comes back mm. is a shade of their former self. Right. Uh, an iconic figure of the past mm-hmm. slash present for us mm. comes back is a shade of their former self mm-hmm. and ultimately gets treated with absolutely no respect by Mega City 1. Right. Well, I mean, the audience loves him, but like Dredd, yeah, who's the don't, voice of. But, they, but also like they don't love him like they love him for what he does they don't love who he was for want of a better way of putting it right because then they would be appalled by what he had become right does that make sense it does and again amazing how prescient a take that is in a way on michael jackson considering everything that consider yeah Mm -hmm. yeah right yeah it's it's just it's a very strange thing Mm-hmm. Where it, it's there, there really is this moment of like having those two stories so close together. Mm-hmm. Where it's you know here is a figure who to us as a culture is incredibly important, right? And then brought back and uh, shall we say at least misunderstood by Mega City well, or I, not recognized. Yeah, as my, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it it fe- felt like a really odd echo because hmm. they're very close together. They really are just weeks apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true and. Maybe it's funny because both of them kind of do feel like that a little bit of, oh, yeah, yeah, You know, it's like um, sometimes the subconscious turns out, you know, an amazing piece of work. And sometimes it just manages to get that little bit of, of corn caught between the teeth out, you know? Like that's kind of what yeah, it feels well, like. And Jack yeah, the Ripper also, does too, I think. Yes, that's just it. Like the fact that it returns yeah. kind of feels like they're like, we didn't quite nail it. Right. We're going to we're going to try and underline it or, you know, and it's interesting. We've talked in previous volumes about how uh, punk uh, dread can feel. And of course, Wagner and Grant really aren't necessarily punk, but their utter disrespect for uh, it's sort of that weird combination of the masses, but especially stuff that was popular in the past. You know what I mean? Like their sense of nostalgia is. Um, it's only confined to racism, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, dude. So there's the interrogation, which is, what did you think of that? Cause like that 
the art didn't do much for me because it's Kim Raymond. But of course, that story is like it's it's again for for people who haven't read the book. It's I mean the short version is Dread is woken up in his sleep by the special uh, SJS special yeah. judges system, special judicial yeah, yeah, system. Yeah, something like Basically, that. the judges who judge the judges. Yeah, uh, who just accuse like they're like we found a bribe. You're you're corrupt. And just try and break him for the entire episode. And don't, but he does black out. And while he's blacked out, they're like, okay, so he passed the test. And it's it's this weirdly brutal, uh, yet kind of wonderful head fuck of a story. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Again, what's great is it's, it's also done in like six or seven pages. And it does have a great punchline, which is at the end, you find out that it was just a random physical abuse test to see if he would crack, you know, and he doesn't. And which is, which if you think about it, it's a very twisted story. Like they're pretty aware that people will crack under torture and just say what people want them to hear just so they can stop being tortured. That's part of why torture doesn't really work mm-hmm. um, as a, as a me- means of getting a, uh, information. Information, yeah. Yeah, and... And Wagner, Grant, and the SJS all know it. And so it's like, yeah, you show up and you see if this guy's actually just tough enough to be tortured and and not break. And he mm-hmm. does. And that's the end of the story and it moves on. And it's like that and the Judges Academy intro thing are just the two nice little nasty punches right towards the end of the volume. <laughs> the the judges. Well, also there's the, there is the whitey story. Yes. Which, which is, is, good too, is, yeah. is doubly great because yeah. it's a 10th anniversary story. It brings back the villain from the very first dread story. Yeah. But it's, it's also a meta story because dread doesn't remember whitey at all. Yes. Which makes sense of course because mm-hmm. why should he like whitey was no one special to read but it also feels like they're speaking on behalf of the readers mm-hmm. because before you get to the punchline that dread does not remember whitey it goes through like the greatest hits of the villains right it's like you know remember block mania remember or you know the mm-hmm. apocalypse war remember judge death and it's like a bite you fucking don't remember whitey which like it's is again nicely nasty yeah it's great it's great again yeah you're right it's and it's it's the it's it's literally them rejecting their own nostalgia like they don't even have it so it's like oh this is the first guy in fact this is this isn't Whitey's appeared since, which they don't even reference, and uh, which I, I think I, is... I maybe didn't remember. <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, that's it. I don't think they did because, because of course, I'm like, I know he popped up again and did this. Yeah, same there, sort was, of there was a, there was a white because there was a Whitey's brother story. Yes, that's right. He like does which the thing. Which might have been in an story. annual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Right. If so I, we might we might remember because it was last week or last <laughs> month rather for us. But I. Um, but yeah, there was the Whitey has come back, but right. that's not reference here at all. Because why should it be? You're right. This is like very anti their own nostalgia. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you want to be a judge story is is really great because it is once again just utterly brutal. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and but utterly brutal in this great way that my favorite brutal moment of it. Is you have the judge uh, saying to the parents, like, you know, this is what to expect if your children are going to be judges. And it, and it's just terrible. It is. Mm-hmm. 
And he's basically like, and if you don't want it, there's the door, but you have to pay us to leave. Yes. That's a great moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If after what you have heard, you decide that you've made a mistake in coming here, that your child is not up to the rigorous standards demanded, you may leave now upon payment of a 100 cred fine at the door. And the is so funny because the next page, like I literally was like, there's going to be no way to top that. And, and it has some of the parents standing around and it's like, oh dear, perhaps we ought to think about this again. Come on, Tanya. And she's like, but dad, I want to be a ruthless killing machine. <laughs> Which is it, it's a great life, right? It really, I was shocked. I was like, why don't you end the store, story right there? But that last page, not only do they manage, I think, to top it, but it's just, oh, it's so good, you know. And the mother making excuses for the son. He's a very sensitive boy. Yeah, he needs his mother. And they're like, we're, they're like, we're not interested. Not just interested. Leave. Just move along. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, why the hell did they put the beast after that? Well, anyway. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there is after that. There's a, a reprint from a sci-fi special, which inexplicably we haven't talked about the story that I was convinced you were going to want to talk about. Oh yeah, which is what. The story about the mother finding her son after he's gone missing. Oh, yeah. The return of Martin Gare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not really the same plot, but it's kind of close. Yeah, that was that's, – that's because that's right it has it, it has the shockingly brutal line. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, hold on. Let me see if I can find it. He was it. rich. He had the right to live. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> you know, yeah. again, we're talking about Mega Study One as 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 dystopia, and like that is, I, I obviously yes. like that is not. Uh, I'm trying to think of a way of saying like you know, neither Wagner Grant clearly nor the judges would agree with that, right? But the brutality of just putting it that way. The plot is uh, a man who is dying is offered a full body transplant, but he doesn't have a donor, and so he basically like creates one by you know engineering a disaster to kill off a holiday party and then yeah. being like he's he's alive i'll use his body yeah but in the explanation it's taking it from the point of view of of the rich guy and the explanation is he was rich he had a right to live yeah yeah which yeah, yeah. is so brutal yeah well you know like, I, I i did think that it was a uh yeah yeah, I I I thought that it was a, a it is a brilliantly told story. I, I I that the brutality of that line, but again, it's a one parter like that's done in two, four, six, seven. It's a seven pager where the hook is the mother thinks that she recognizes her son who had disappeared like three years earlier, and she's like I. That's my son. And oh, and her name's Mrs. Moomin, which is, again, oh, which oh, I love. <laughs> yeah, just such a strange Euro comic shout out. Um, but yeah, and then so hearing the story about what, because you first ha hear about what happens to Karloff Schuller. Uh, oh, no, sorry, Donnie Moomin. What happens to Donnie Moomin is like, he was a strong, young, fit, cheerful, outgoing lad. And. In that summer of that year, Donnie had invested his entire savings in the holiday of a lifetime, you know, and then he, it, they leave in, in a uh, Radland Express to like go out and like have fun out in the cursed earth going dinosaur hunting. And they're like, and that was the last anyone in the city ever saw of Danny, Donnie Moomin. It, 
it's such a it's a it's I, I didn't mention it because like I said I feel like there's so many great pieces but I I love the narration in the story it's like a perfect the the voice the narrative voice in the story is perfect you know and I just I love how it's uh, oh boy yeah, again, almost like an EC story, but because it is, um, you know, where it's like the guy gets his comeuppance. He wants to live forever, and in the end, he does get to live forever. But, mm-hmm. you know, but but in that cruel twist kind of way that serves justice upon him. But it's it's not just that. It really is a level of other things. And again, there's a real... There's an awareness of the inequality in the culture. And I think what's chilling about that line is Wagner and Grant are able to see how that guy sees himself. You mm-hmm. know, he's rich. He deserves to live. Mm-hmm. That is um, like it's how do I put it? Like that's something that I feel like people on Twitter talk about all the time, like they can't believe that everyone isn't aware of that. But back in 86, that is not the way that a lot of us necessarily thought that, you know, we were like, Oh sure. Yeah. The rich people think that they deserve, you know, everything because, you know, they're rich, but not quite in that level of brutality. And so there is. And and that's just it. Like Mm -hmm. it feels real now for one yeah. of a better way of putting it right like we we recognize the verisimilitude yeah in 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 that in that one statement yep in yeah. the bluntness of that yep um that again we've talked about this before when these stories were written it probably seemed like hyperbole right you know no, and, exactly. and it, 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 it ends up just being like oh no that's that's right mm-hmm. <laughs> turns out that is that is right for them yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the again, the weird thing about that quote-unquote Jackson Prince story is it's, it's you know, on the surface, it's about taking dead celebrities and bringing them back. Like, I think, I think these are guys who maybe liked the Jackson 5, but were not so crazy about Thriller and just like, ugh, and extrapolating it. And, you know... I read this story like what was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago that someone said that they were going to put James Dean in a movie, you know, and yeah, yeah. you know, on top of Prince's albums hitting Spotify, despite the fact that Prince himself did not want that. Yeah, it's very clear about that. Yeah, yeah. It, despite the Michael Jackson documentaries that show a completely different other side of horror, you know, it's just it's a it's it's. It's it's got that weird kind of creepy feel to it of like, oh, yeah, these are guys who are just kind of, again, to bring back to a touchstone, you and I, when you talk about someone like Jack Kirby, who is just cranking out stories, and then he tells stuff in OMAC that feels like really um, like it just seems like craziness back when he's when he's cranking those stories out in like 74 or whatever and then by 2019 you're like well yeah of course of course there are billionaires who rent entire cities out it's called 
it's called the Salesforce uh, Fest that takes over San Francisco for a week at a time. You know, yeah, it's yeah. it's just it's old hat by now. So yeah, it's um, oh Graham, I really like this volume a lot. Like it, these it volumes, is ten very, is yeah, it's a very very strong volume. And what's crazy to me is I've mentioned that next volume there's another mega epic, right? And and it's the mega epic that breaks. Grant and Wagner up, right? Which you were saying, and which is it's amazing. so weird to me that like we have we are almost at the end of their partnership. First of all, Oof. but also that like Dread is, with the exception of like Volume Eight, Dread has just been great. Yeah, yeah, all yeah, this yeah. Time. Like, exactly. Really, since like since like Volume Two, yep. These are all astonishingly good comics. Mm-hmm. Like these collections are staggeringly strong. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like there's one that's off. Yeah. Exactly. Which is incredible for ten years worth of work from the ten, same right. Ten years of weekly comics. Like that is ridiculous. That is just a ridiculous record. Like it's it 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 breaks my heart again, sort of in the same way where I was like, Oh my god, why are people reading Jesus Christ the day the law died is fucking phenomenal? You know, is People talk about like, oh, look, Brian Bendis uh, actually, you know, working with uh, Mark Bagley broke Lee and Kirby's run on the Fantastic Four. I'm like, okay, why don't you do fucking 10 years of writing something as well as these or eight years of these guys as they wrote Judge Dredd and then get back to me? You know what I mean? Like this is way beyond uh, i think a sustained level of excellence that is the but you know the weird part is is like this is my favorite volume but it i think but i think that it definitely would fail the is this the first volume that i would give a newbie because it's oh no i i i agree yeah i agree it's it's a volume that is i mean these comics are great just Mm -hmm. they just are Mm mm-hmm but it's a volume that I think you only really get the full power of it if you've read earlier Dread. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like everything before fell in varying degrees of Dread 101 that I feel like you could hand someone and they would appreciate to lesser or greater degrees. And there'd be a little bit of diminishing returns the more you went on with the volumes because half of the fun was the interplay, but this, because it really is in a way a, destru- a deconstruction, it is, it is the next level. Like you can't really appreciate it until you've had the other stuff, but holy shit, what an achievement it is. I mean, you can, because again, just some of these stories at seven pages, I feel like should be taught. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. The craft alone. Yeah. Even if you don't get all of the references, even if you don't get all of the context, right? The craft loan. I mean, you know, we have talked about a lot of stories in mm-hmm. this book, mm-hmm. but to pick another one that we haven't talked about, mm. uh, the two-parter that Steve Dillon draws, uh, what's called the Beating Heart. Yes, right. Oh, yeah, right. is again mm-hmm. just like it's a two-parter. It's got a cliffhanger, but they're two very different parts. Yes. Right, mm-hmm. but like the reveal at the end of part one is masterful, and you don't have to understand Judge Dredd at all. Oh yeah, for that story to work, right? Because right. it's such a great idea, and it's so well done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the, the level of craft here is, is just extraordinary. Well, or for that matter, I didn't mention it at all, but the two-part story that, again, has great art by McCarthy, The Witness, part mm-hmm. one and part two, which comes much closer to a quote-unquote traditional Judge Dredd story. There's a crime, Dredd tries to catch the perp. There's a twist, but there's a number of misdirects to pull that twist off that that worked for me. I was I was kind of appalled that I didn't see that twist. And I was like, oh right, of course I should have seen it. Of course. This is this story is like one of the oldest gimmies in the book. But the way that they do it, and then of course you've got, you know, again, McCarthy doing just some fabulous art. Oh my God. Yeah, no, the Telltale Heart, oh sorry, whatever it's called, the Beating Heart, which is a weird mix it's a that's a weird story graham because to me because it's like oh it's edgar Allan poe but it's also not you know what i mean like it's a weird it it's it's it to me it was like oh it's it's wagner and grant basically saying the only defense against toxic masculinity is more toxic masculinity you know like (laughs) Um, the, the short uh, uh, explanation of this uh, for for those who who don't know, there's a man obsessed with a woman, and he bugs her apartment because, of course, he does. Yeah, uh, and then she gets a boyfriend, and he the boyfriend asks her to marry him, and the one who's bugged her apartment is so upset that he murders the boyfriend. Yeah, um, only for the boyfriend's heart to start beating yeah. in a container. Yeah, uh, which essentially drives him mad, mm-hmm. uh, or to be fair, is actually an expression of the madness that is latent inside him. Exactly. Um, until he he confesses the murder, he he goes to the the, the woman and confesses the murder. Yeah, it's it's a it's such a great story. Like it's yeah. such a great story. I love it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting that you love it because it is kind of a weird. To me, it is and. The, this is for some, this would be said with praise, not necessarily for me. This to me is the most, and I'm sure it's because Dylan's drawing it. It's the most uh, Garth Ennessy of the stories, you know, like I kind of, I wasn't as crazy about it because the, the weird looking wimp is a weird looking wimp who loves the woman from afar and loves her just for her looks, you know, and the guy that she ends up taking up with who is Brad and is totally handsome, like Wagner and Grant actually make it a point. Like he's an okay guy. There's nothing toxic about the relationship. The only toxic toxicity is the guy's, crazy psychoness and then i think to me the part of the story that i find disquieting and a little maybe even more so than that that amazing line about you know rich um is is that he shows the heart to the woman and says like i can't take it anymore it's it's driving me crazy you take it and she she also goes crazy like yes she she utterly utterly breaks down right she she has a mental break right there yeah and is unable to talk yeah 
which which like I, I i like a lot like it sort of grounds the horror again no exactly i think you know yeah that it's what makes the story to me a little quote unquote better than the mm-hmm. than the Poe piece that it's clearly uh, riffing on. What what I like about it so much is I love, I really do love that end of part one reveal. Mm. I just think it's so well done, and I love that it. it we've talked before about Wagner Grant uh, and Eisner being a forerunner, whether mm-hmm. or not it was influenced. And the second part feels very much like an Eisner story to me. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. No. That. Again, the EC and the Eisner influences that we've talked about in previous volumes are are definitely are very, here. very present. Here. Yeah, 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 very, very present. present here. But Wagner and Grant, it's not just that they've been doing it so long, but they really have synthesized it so thoroughly that it is it is their own take. It is their own voice. They, oh because, yeah, yeah. At this at this point, it's yeah. a Judge Dread comic. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Like earlier, we were like, you know, it's a spirit comic. I know these are all Judge Dread stories. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I, it's just the Judge Dread stories at their best, and these are Dread stories at their best. Absolutely. Like have this level of, I mean, what do you call it? Like nuance, humor, humanism. Well, uh, like fascism. You know what? I, once I, 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 I would say that the difference is is that that the EC stories do the moralizing, and the Eisner stories kind of do the 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 storytelling. But I guess like Eisner Eisner's little storytelling is kind of like it's always about the little guy. You know what I mean? Like he always starts off like it's supposed to be about the big sweeping thing, but it's actually about the little guy. And that's kind exactly. of what you think of it. You know, here, here's a big event. Here's like Davy Schlub in the middle. Exactly. Of it. Here's Gerard Schnabel, which nobody pays attention to. You know, I think the difference is by this point, the synthesis that makes them both different is as opposed to... um as opposed to like EC's moralizing is that the, and the beating heart is actually a great example of this at the core of it. The Wagner grant idea of it is essentially that somebody's responsible. You know what I mean? Like there's that, that the freak justice of, you know, the biller woman with the ghost coming back. Like it's, it's kind of an easy story, but it is very much, she she it's explicitly underlaid in the story what she's doing isn't illegal there is the system is there and it's to be exploited and i think yes and And, and there are those exploiting it exactly and i think ultimately this volume is the way in which judge dread doesn't actively exploit the system but he is the system like and the system exists to like he serves it it serves him he literally is the law the the interconnectedness of the society and the culture and sort of the kind of the realm of unintended consequences like i feel like you said like maybe you want to call that humanism but like eisner's a humanist the ec stories are in their way humanist but there's sort of a simple uh for lack of a better term, a simple morality to them. And 
by this point, certainly, Wagner and Grant have tapped into something closer to a Kafkaesque uh, nightmarishness, a hilarious nightmarishness, because, you know, we should never forget that Kafka thought his stuff, like, he could barely read his stories aloud. He couldn't read them without laughing, you know? Like, despite how incredibly, uh, how much they're about suffering. Like they exactly. see the yeah. humor and they see the suffering in it. And it's, it's, it's almost a, it's like a, it's, it's an unsolvable riddle in a way. Like we really, you're just going to, there's gotta be, as Dredd keeps saying, there's gotta be some system in place, you know, cause people are kind of basically lunatics, but once you put a system in place, the system starts making people into a specific kind of lunatic and and so it is it's kind of this weird eternal comedy kind of thing that that so that's what i would say would you does that sound right or does that seem a little off or overreaching no i i know I, I think you're i think you're probably right mm-hmm. um it's just the complexity of dread mm-hmm. is when you stop and think about it just amazing yeah genuinely amazing and I guess what's so impressive for me is that the strip never stops to make you think about it. Mm-hmm. Like you accept it, mm-hmm. you buy into it, right, and you understand it, right. Yeah, I think that's just it. like despite that complexity. Do you know what I mean? Like you never stop and think this is this is a, a real feat. This is a real achievement, right? Well, uh, I, right. And the flip side of that is I buy into it and without necessarily understanding it. You know what I mean? Like the number of stories that hit me where it's like I'm really on a different wavelength from Wagner and Grant in a lot of ways. But they and their collaborators have a very particular sense of things. And so it's weird to be able to be like, oh, that's a good dread story. That's a bad dread story. This story works for me. This story doesn't. But if you ask me why or how, I'm just like. This one feels right. This one doesn't feel right. Like you can tell, like it's, it's this, they have an internal consistency. You buy into it. It's great stuff, but you can also even be like, oh, I like this one better than this one, or this one seems more crafted than that one. But if I, you know, if we weren't sitting here having to talk about it for, you know, for, yeah, a if we hours had, if we had month, read like, 10 years in a in a year's worth of, yeah. of time right we didn't talk about it for two hours every month right would we really be fully aware of how complex it is or again would we just have bought into it i think i think i would have just bought into it i don't think i would have been aware of it you know because it's I think be, maybe because that's it, it kind of gets to that level of when they're working at that level and it's just coming out of their unconscious, it really is, it sort of goes into your brain at like the most unconscious level possible, you know? It's almost harder to look at it and figure out how to, how how the piece. So how work. does it work? <laughs> yeah, how does it work? It, yeah. And it is, it's, it's, it seems like magic beforehand. And the amazing thing about how good this stuff is, is you start breaking it apart and it's amazing how good it is there too. So yeah, I'm, I was, Oh, 
this 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 was the perfect Christmas gift of a volume, Graham. I really do have to say it worked. It worked for me on just about every level. I was I was saying to you off recording, but I'll I'll say now on recording. I first read it when my mind wasn't in it at all, right? And I I didn't like it. I, I it just didn't work for me. And then reading it once I was over that like stress and anxiety point mm-hmm. i had this moment of like oh no these are all classic stories yeah like, they really are like yeah. all of these stories as mm-hmm. i say all of these stories i keep forgetting that there is the stanley <laughs> point out. and also there's the one where it's what if adverts were done by the judges which is again like weird filler weird yeah. filler where every page is done by a different artist weird um, yeah, both jam except, strip yeah exception those two right like you know they they put it this way the hits to misses Yes, yeah. is, I mean, for anyone else, this would be a career best. Yeah, and instead, for Wacken Grand, is like this is just what we do. Yes, which is nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, I should mention the um, that great you are Judge Dredd spot the perp uh, two page sort of puzzle mm-hmm. page. One of the things that I loved about that really was. Being able to look at it and being able to spot the perps. Like, I can't say that I got <laughs> all of them, but I'm that really does show after reading like 10 volumes of this or nine, you know, it was like I sat down. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, you can't sell comics. No, that guy's clearly dressed up like a judge. Like, oh, yeah, no, those guys are handy trigger to each other. Like, it was really funny. Like, I was like, Oh, and and when I did it, I was looking at it like, oh God, I'm praying. I prayed that this isn't just a gag. And no, they really did have like, you know, after the story. Yeah, there's like twenty. There's a key, and there's like twenty crimes happening on each side of the page. So I didn't. I didn't. I don't think my batting average was that great. But again, kind of a really weird achievement in how how rewarding how much the strip rewards you if you really do dig into it and that's that is that's a that is it's it's funny to think that that dread for me is some is a character that i you know like i touched in on lightly but this character goes on for another 20 some odd years and 30 years and it's and it's still um sort of quote unquote relevant but i'm just like like, oh my God, this is so, the, the first 10 years of this are so rewarding. It's, yeah. I'm kind of creeped out in a way, like in a good way. I am I am going to say that, uh, and I've said this before, but but we're cl- much closer now. Right. The, the golden era for me lasts through volume, I think it's 13. Right. Or maybe it's 14. Uh, I'm looking it up now. Okay. So, uh, through Necropolis, basically. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is just, just amazing. I mean, legitimately, uh, no, it's 14. It's the last through volume 14. Right. Um, and, and the, the material doesn't slip. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Even as the strip evolves, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. material doesn't slip. And it's, it's shocking to think that something held up that quality for 14 years with, for the most part, one guy in charge of the writing. Yeah, right. And he's writing on a weekly basis. That you know, just is like that's 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 mind blowing. Yeah, that's that's such an achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the guy is still writing dread intermittently. Mm-hmm. 
and his dread is still great. You know, thirty years later, it's is also staggering. Right, right. I mean, it's it's really it's funny to me how much you have essentially a whole bunch of people talking about that, and yet it still sort of feels like it's being slept on because it's because yeah. It, it still feels like a surprise. Yeah, it's well, it's surprising, but I'm really I just there are times where I'm like, oh, my God, why isn't everyone talking about this? And of course, part of the reason why I wanted to do this with you is I'd always tried to get into dread and could never quite make it. And and, you know, now that I am, of course, part of me is like, oh, my God, why isn't everyone talking about this all the time? This is stunning, you know? That's, uh... But there, I mean, but you know, you're your own answer because right. it is hard to get into dread. It yeah. is like I think I think you have to make the commitment. To be perfectly honest, well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of it is it's it's it is so it's such an intense it's so mon momentous. I guess it's it's really it is it's hard. It so. So, listeners, I gotta say thank you. I'm I say this usually at the it's time of every closing but i i really i'm i'm breaking early and breaking bad and to say like <laughs> thank you because this year of rock has been a, a real um it it it's all, all all killer no filler or very little filler comparatively whereas like i forget were we like in misery by this point in the Baxter building or were we still? No, I, I want to say we were still in Lee and Kirby. Yeah. Cause I think it took us the first sure. year to get through all of Lee and Kirby. And so yeah. that was still pretty awesome. Even when it was, you could see the diminishing returns. And I guess that's, what's crazy is this is, this is still... Yeah. We've not reached the diminishing returns yet. No. I'm not we do until we reach like a, a volume 13 or 14 which is insane that's insane to me so yeah um graham i know that you are one for being punctual and honestly i think by the time you cut all this together you'll find we talked for about two hours so oh no i was going to say like we should use that to pivot uh yes. to, to closing everything off uh because you know all that really needs to be said is this is a great volume yeah for sure there is so much here that it's uh, – in t you said it was your favorite volume. Yeah. I'm not sure it's my favorite volume, but it's definitely up there. Yeah. There's, there's so much good stuff here. Uh, it, even when, like I said, you know, Kitson's art doesn't really work for me. Jeff Anderson's right. art doesn't really work for me. Right. Like you still have – and even visually, mm -hmm. like writing-wise, it's solid all the way through. But even visually, you've got McCarthy. You've got Kevin O'Neill. Yeah. You've got Jose Ortiz. Like you have uh, Cam Kennedy. There's so much – here that it's just this is great everyone yeah the end let let me at least split a hair and say this is my favorite non mega prog volume you know because i do think because there is part of me that's going to be like you know you you only get one first time reading the day the law died you know what i mean so it's kind of <sighs> anyway, so but it's great. It's great. The volume two and this are definitely my two my two favorite volumes. I think at this point, though, I wouldn't surprise me if I've said that about at least three other volumes so far. So that's how good this <laughs> material is. 
With that, I am going to pivot to closing things off. There's going to be show notes for this up at some point on Monday. Uh, open brackets. We'll see how <laughs> all the rush goes. Close bracket. It will be up Monday. I just couldn't tell you when it's going to be up Monday. Anyway, that's going to be at waitwhatpodcast.com. Yeah. Before then, you can look at up at Instagram, which I swear I'll get back to. That's instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpodcast. Sorry, instagram.com forward slash waitwhatpod. Uh, we're also... Uh, have a Tumblr, waywhatpods.tumblr.com for all your holiday needs between now and Christmas Day. That's right. And then there is also a Twitter account at waywhatpodcasts. Jeff Lester has a Twitter. You should all go and follow it. It's at lazybastid, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. And I have a Twitter. It's at Graham M. G-R-A-E-M-E-M. Done. Jeff. Talk about the Patreon because I've lost the ability to speak. You have, uh, everyone. I again, I am. I'm always grateful to our listeners. It's something that keeps Graham and I um, uh, coming back and doing this. I think if you guys didn't listen, would we talk? I don't know. It's a chicken and an egg kind of thing. I think at a certain point, yes. I mean, yes. honestly, yeah. <laughs> yes, we would. No, we would at this point, but. <laughs> Yeah, but for a long time there, maybe it was, maybe it would have happened. I don't know. In any event, uh, we're grateful for that. We're super grateful for your comments, your uh, on the Twitter, your emails to us, your your comments, especially over at the Wait What podcast, where you guys are just bewilderingly smart. Um, and we're super grateful to the listeners uh, who are also members of uh, Patreon, who throw us a little bit of their hard earned dosh. Uh, every month to um, it keeps us inspired it keeps us um, energized like we we take that very very seriously and it it means a lot and like I said if we hadn't hit our stretch goals and done an additional episode uh, each month we wouldn't have done the Baxter building which pays weird dividends as hopefully you'll find out in our last episode in the year when I try and talk about Fantastic Four Grand Design by Tom Scioli um, and also in Drock which holy hell guys uh, it's been it's been a really fine year of reading Judge Dredd and you guys are directly responsible for that so for all of that seriously thank you and a Super big thank you and happy holidays to Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy, for making sure that uh, her continuing support of the, this podcast and making sure that that um, beautiful star in the evening sky is not her cosmic paw coming to crush us to dust. Graham? Or is it? it uh, Jeff just said happy holidays, which... Uh, appropriate this is the last episode before christmas but it's not last episode of the year because we're going to be back next week that's right uh to to look back at 2019 and just yeah exactly that that sigh is exactly the right response yeah that's 2019 it's been a year everyone and (laughs) you know we'll tell you why that's true next week i guess yeah that's like a really weird tease but yeah sure yeah so let's let's go with it um uh jeff i don't sing us out because this is a drug that's all you that's right this is the point in the in the uh show where i say judge dread i want to confess not tonight sonny and a merry christmas to you too drock <laughs> oh my god i did the reading of the end of the christmas story 
I know you. <laughs> You're like, yes, Jeff, I read it too.